0: Hello, welcome to another episode of New Discourses Bullets. This is James Lindsay. On New Discourses Bullets, I'd like to explain one particular concept relevant to the woke Marxist movement so that you can better understand it, and this one is going to be confusing. I've been asked by many, many people to put out a short explainer on the dialectic. You've heard me say the dialectic a lot. If you pay attention to my podcast, if you try to follow my writing, if you know what Marxism is, you know what gets described as dialectical materialism. If you've read your critical race theory books, you know that they say that, you know, when you solve the problem of, uh, you know, race as a solid class, then you have to look at, you know, racial categories intersected with women, with homosexuals, with ability status, and so on, to get into, say, specific races or specific other conditions like black women, uh, Latinas, uh, disabled Latinas, etc., to go further and further down the intersection And they say, and so the dialectic progresses as it moves into those more specific categories. And so the dialectic comes up. In fact, the dialectic is the logic of leftism at least since Rousseau. So at least since 1760, uh, I think it was 62, 1762, when he wrote the social contract in which he proposed this dialectical concept. He says that, uh, the way that we, what the social contract does is kind of a binding glue in society is it restricts freedom. He says man is born uh, everywhere man is free, born free, But no sorry, man is born free but everywhere he's in chains. I always get those words mixed up. And so what he says, dialectically speaking, is that if we were to give up some of our freedoms voluntarily, we would have more freedom because everything would work more smoothly and therefore We give up our freedoms voluntarily and freedom increases. Sounds like a magic trick. Kind of makes sense actually in a degree if you think about traffic. You volunteer voluntarily agree not to speed, not to drive across the yellow line, to follow the rules of traffic. You volunteer to limit your freedom on the road and thus traffic works better, better so the collective is made more free and all the individuals in the collective can optimize freedom by giving up some of their freedom. This is a fundamental idea of uh kind of negative thinking that's at the heart of this. We have this idea of freedom, but the way that we're going to get to the best freedom is by giving up some of our freedom on purpose. That's the dialectic. Another one that Rousseau had was that he looked out at the as the, he called them savages in in colonial territories that were not Europeans, not in cities. And he said, Look how free they are. They live in their instincts, they live in their emotions, look how restricted. Life is here in the cities. Man is born free, but everywhere he is in chains because of the laws, the manners, the expectation to be reasonable and decent, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he said there has to be some point in between. So he said that if we could figure out how to make savages made to live in cities, then we could optimize human flourishing. And thus you have his attention to the noble savage and the combination of opposites, which gets picked up through a series of other philosophers, eventually by Georg Hegel, who's a German philosopher, a systematic philosopher, who's kind of the not the father of the dialectic. The dialectic traces back to Plato. Obviously, Rousseau used dialectical thinking. Immanuel Kant, who preceded uh, Hegel in Germany, also is, is usually considered the father of the modern dialectic or the philosophical dialectic, which is expressed as combining a thesis, any idea, with its antithesis its opposite, in order to get a higher level understanding called its synthesis, but when it gets to Hegel, he's looking at Rousseau, he's looking at this idea of savages made to live in cities, and the term that's been handed to him in German for this is Aufheben. Aufheben means a couple of things at once, in fact three things at once. That means to cancel or abolish on the one hand, it also means to keep or to preserve on the other hand, which those are opposing concepts. And then on the third hand, if you literally take the word "Aufheben" apart, which means to have upon, it means to lift up uh, to a higher level. And so Hegel was in love with this idea of Alfhaben and the idea that you have a word that in fact has this dialectical process built into it, the the combination of these opposite ideas that then lifts you up to a higher level of understanding of what that idea is about. And he was in love with this self-speculative word. Alfhaben, and it defined how he approached the idea of combining a thesis and an antithesis, which he was reading in Kant, or the combination of opposites, the city dweller with the savage, in order to create some higher level understanding of this more um, effective, uh, better thing. The Marxists translate Alfhaben as sublate, which means to destroy the particulars, keep the essence, and lift it up so you understand it on a higher level, which is by definition a synthetic level. So the idea of the dialectic is that it keeps the essence, destroys the particulars, and lifts you up to a higher level of understanding that's supposed to be a superior one. Let me give you a couple of definitions. So if we go to the Cambridge Dictionary, dialectical, adjective, social sciences, specialized term, it says, discovering what is true by considering opposite theories. So you're going to try to get to truth by combining opposites. That's the idea of the dialectic. And the key to that, again, is that the way you do it is to lift up to a higher level of understanding where you understand both things as part of a single whole. So we turn over to the Marxists' encyclopedia. Marxists.org has an encyclopedia on their website, and we read a little bit of the long entry for dialectics. It says dialectics is the method of reasoning which aims to understand things concretely and all their movement Change and interconnection with their opposite and contradictory sides in unity. So, again, it's the unification of opposites. And he goes on, or they go on here to say dialectics as opposed to the formal metaphysical mode of thought of ordinary understanding, which it considers low level, which begins with a fixed definition of a thing according to its various attributes. For example, a formal thought would explain a fish is something with no legs and that lives in the water. And then they go into a long discussion of how Darwin uncovered the true nature and essence of what a fish is. Maybe that's a correct reading of history, and maybe it's not. But this is the idea. It's the unification of opposites, where you take things that are opposed to one another and lift them up to a higher level of understanding. And Hegel, like I said, is sort of the big father of this idea. Now, if we turn to Hegel, his kind of most famous book is called The Phenomenology of Spirit, which was published in 1807. Which he said is a, describes a system of science, in which, by the way, what I just said with understanding versus a higher level, he, he said that understanding is a low level of actually understanding a thing. It doesn't take into account you, you may understand a phenomenon, you may understand it scientifically, you may understand why the chemistry works the way it does, or the physics works the way it does, or the social circumstance works the way that it does, but you don't understand the other opposing forces, the hidden forces or whatever, that there's a higher level of understanding that is in fact the philosophy itself. You've taken into account maybe epistemology or logic, but you haven't taken into account phenomenology, how the thing came to be, how the thing came to change from one thing to another, etc. And so above understanding is another higher level concept called reason. And reason is just conveniently enough synonymous with his own philosophy. Being reasonable means thinking the way that Hegel wrote down his systematic philosophy understanding or a scientific understanding of things is a low level comprehension of what you're actually trying to understand and so he therefore puts his theory above observation above really correction sure this is a critical method that goes out in the world and it says this is what we think about the world let's see what happens it's not working out the way we thought so it sounds scientific so let's change what we thought but the thing is is that because theory is placed above observation in the dialectic for hegel theory is the tool by which you go back to re-understand why it didn't work. And so you never actually get away from theory. You only go back to theory to explain away rather than to explain why what you're seeing doesn't work. And that should resonate with you if you've watched Leftists in Action, because the engine of the left for at least since 1762, whatever that works out to mathematically real quick, we could do the math, I guess, was it 260 years, at least since then, at least in 1762, the logic of leftism has been dialectical leftism, which I insist is a religion, a religious belief, a set of uh, articles of faith bound together, inspiring duties of conscience, but that's a topic for another day. This religion defines how the left thinks, that's why that's familiar. So what does Hegel say in this phenomenology of spirit about the dialectic? Well, he's Hegel's famously hard to read famously hard to understand. So he gives this explanation. The dialectic is the process of its own becoming, the circle that presupposes its end as its goal, having its end also as its beginning, and only by being worked out to its end is it actual. There's not a very useful explanation of what the dialectic is. But what we're talking about, I've already said, is that we're mixing opposites so you can think of that on a horizontal dimension, right? You have Imagine it's like on the desk. You draw one thing over here and you draw the other thing over there. You have the thesis and you have its antithesis. You have the idea and you have its, its opposite or its negation. You put them side by side. That's like a horizontal plane, right? And so you're going to mix them together and try to understand them from some higher view. Those are your opposites. So you have this horizontal movement between the opposites that you can see them pass into one another. And a famous example that I think actually traces back to Hegel, but I'm not positive is you can have this apple and you can have that apple. You call that thing an apple, you call the other apple thing an apple. Maybe it's a red delicious and a golden delicious, but you call them both apples. That's a mystery. And so something of appleness transcends whatever each of those particular apples is. And so the under higher level understanding is appleness or being an apple and both of those things have it. So these opposites a red apple and a yellow apple kind of pass into one another horizontally, but there's an upward understanding in whatever it means to be an apple categorizes them, or captures them both. Of course, all that's happening is categorization, and this is, you know, a very clunky way to think about it, because he's actually taking it as a tool of transformation. But what you have, again, is you have opposites on a horizontal level, and you have a vertical dimension of understanding on a higher plane. Of course, when you believe you're understanding on a higher plane, you start to make yourself into a priest that's going to tell all the stupid people who don't understand the difference what the difference is. You're going to become their intellectual or political master. And that's really what the point of the dialectic is. It's to make things complicated so that you can sit on top and tell people what they are by mixing together opposites in a way that don't make sense. But the dialectic is the combination of opposites so that you are claiming to see them from some higher level that is necessarily synthetic, and in which they are both sort of true or part of what's going on. So um, Hegel framed this out as the idea of abstract And negative combining into something more concrete, which is actually by what he means, and we heard that in the Marxist definition. What he means though is a more complex understanding, a thing that takes into account more of the causes. So everything that has been left out of what we're looking at has to be added in and synthesized to it. And eventually for Hegel, this reaches up to the level of the absolute, which is God, which is the perfect idea that leaves nothing out, has nothing that it ignored. Nothing that it overlooked. And this is the kind of thing, like I said, that empowers people who think that they're wizards, that they're priests, that they're better than us, and they're going to be able to tell us because they are the only ones who understand the true systemic and structural complexity of the world by understanding more of its causes than we do. And therefore, they're going to tell us what's going to go on. Now, for Hegel, the quintessential dialectic was between being and non being, being and nothing, as it were, that which is and that which is not but in some sense that which could be, or maybe even should be. So for him, you can have being and nothing, that which is and that which is not. And you can look at them from above a higher level and say, well, that's what's becoming. It's becoming something or it's diminishing and becoming nothing. So becoming is a higher level concept it, but th- th- that captures both being and non-being. And this was his fundamental idea, his fundamental dialectic that being and non-being combine into a process called becoming. This is why his book is called The Phenomenology of Spirit, which examines the phenomenon of the spirit of society. How does the spirit of society come into being? From non-being, from nothing. And it's that in some sense, they're like a red apple and a golden apple. The one apple, being, it's everything. What's being? It's that which is. There's no real clarity or everything that is, is. Well, the only thing that makes it different is that which is not. And so you can only understand the idea of is or being against is not or non being or nothing. And so they're actually in a harmonious relationship with one another. And you understand that the idea of transformation, transmutation from one thing to another is or becoming is a true nature that captures both of them. And so for the Hegelian dialectical leftist thought, becoming a transformation, a process of transformation is the essence of reality. It's not a world that is, it's not a god that is, it is a god and a world that are in the process of becoming, through the processes of human beings, discovering how things are actually opposed to one another, often containing their own contradictions, and thus needing to be understood from a higher level, that which is versus that which is not, but hey, maybe could be. So here's an example. This is one that will ring true with Marxists, we have a wealthy society, but there are poor people. That's a contradiction. So what do you do? Well, when you see them from a higher level, you understand that a wealthy society could organize to redistribute wealth, and you end up with socialism, which in the modern day we call equity. Here's another idea. We have a democracy. Everybody gets to have their vote. Everybody gets to have their say, but people are not really equal. Some people have more money. They have more advantage. It's more. It's easier for them to get to the voting booth. So what we need is we what, we what we have is a, not really a democracy because it's not truly equal, right? So what we need is a more equal democracy, which they've called in the past social democracy or inclusive democracy in the present day. That's more, that takes active steps to include those who are normally excluded. See, we can look at society as it is, and then we can say, well, what else could be, or what bad thing could not be, thus freeing us up from some oppression or bad uh, circumstance. And then how do we make society become that thing? So we redistribute wealth or we redistribute political enfranchisement. We redistribute opportunity, something like this, and we create a social democracy. That's what the democratic socialists or the DSA, the democratic socialists of America, for example, claim to be pushing their communists. That's what inclusive democracy, if you read, that's what they're talking about. When the democratic party gets on, on television and says. Joe Rogan is a threat to our democracy, or Donald Trump is a threat to our democracy. What they mean is an inclusive democracy. This is exactly what Lenin said when he said, we think about democracy. This is in State and Revolution back in 1917, he wrote this. And he said, when we think about democracy, what we actually have is a bourgeois democracy. It's only democracy for the bourgeois class, for the property holders, for the for the the upper class people. And it, ex- it excludes everybody else who are actually the majority of our society, the peasants, um, the worker the laborer that excludes them. So what we need to do is create a social democracy, is what he called it, with a dictatorship of the proletariat that will suppress the bourgeoisie because they have too much representation and elevate the proletariat because they don't have enough representation. But of course, they're bumpkins, so they'll be uh, represented by proxy. By a council of experts or a council of stakeholders who speak on their behalf. And the word for council in Russian is Soviet, which starts to make sense of how this all works. And here's another example of a dialectic. You have individuals, but we live in society, right? In a collective of a sort uh, or in a society. We have individuals who live in society with other people, right? And so the, the answer to that is the collective or collectivism uh, and the idea, of going back to Rousseau, is that by being collectivist, in other words, thinking in terms of how our actions impact everybody else, instead of just thinking in our own individualistic ways, we set everybody more free. And so the collectivist is the dialectical synthesis of the individual who has to live in a society. So in some sense, that's what Marx is going after when he says that the goal is for people in communism is to awaken to your true nature and realize that you are a human being, human beings are truly social beings. And in fact, being perfectly social or truly social is what makes them human. What he's actually saying is that we are inherently collectivists. We are individuals whose individuality is created by, in fact, bowing to the collective to make sure the whole collective is upheld and everybody gets their equal shake. That's the idea. Doesn't that sound like intersectionality where you're a member of all these groups, all these different groups, and you have to think in terms of your group identity constantly, but that's what makes you an individual. You're an individual who is a happens to be or not happens to be who is defined by being, uh, you know, gay woman, person of color, whatever happens to be the group intersectionality, right? Your intersectional position in the s- structural hierarchy of society determines who you really are. But when we figure that out and understand that, that's how true individualism arises. So what that gives you the idea is that, well, we could be independent individuals or we could be dependent on society, but actually, if you raise up to a higher level and understand it, we're interdependent. And if you actually read the literature that's coming out today, they talk a lot about the need to move into interdependence. The World Economic Forum, for example, is pushing for the interdependence of many nations, global cooperation. The United Nations exists to create interdependent nations. The European Union exists to create interdependent nations. Do you get the picture yet? It's a sublation. It's a synthetic amalgamation of many different parts that could be uh, independent. That's why federalism in the United States is so important. That's why the 10th Amendment is so important because it says, actually, you know what? We're going to minimize the role of the federal government. We're not going to put the power there because that's a synthetic thing. We're going to re-empower the states. The states are going to retain most of the power in, independently. Now, that's been on a slippery slide ever since the Civil War, and at this point, after Woodrow Wilson in particular, uh, and then FDR, and then all the different changes that have happened with whatever since World War II, um, up to the present day, we have an extraordinarily overpowered, hyper-powered federal government, and the story of the anti-federalist argument back in the 1780s has come into fruition even though the Federalists won the argument and created a constitution for a federal system that doesn't allow for this huge amount of interdependence between the states. The states are supposed to be largely autonomous union, units. Here's another one. You have heterosexual and homosexual. Now this cuts into what is called structuralism in the linguistic sense, that the idea of different opposites are defined. They only have meaning. And we already talked about that being only has meaning or nothing only has meaning in relation to the other, right? You you can only understand being, if you take being in the whole universe, everything that is, you don't have anything that clarifies anything. You can only say it is different from that, which is not. And so, and you can't understand that, which is not, because it doesn't have any character or essence whatsoever. So you can only understand it in comparison to that, which is. And so those two are a fundamental difference. And so, again, becoming or transforming is the concept that links them, that sublates them to a higher level. So you have your horizontal opposites that are lifted up to a higher level of understanding that only the wizards can understand. So they have to tell you what the right answers are. And that really starts to make sense when we get to something like heterosexual and homosexual. See, if we didn't have heterosexuals, we wouldn't understand what homosexuals are. Different, that's hetero. Same, that's homo. So there's different and same sexuals. Those are opposed, but they're only opposed because they are linguistic opposites. You can't understand what a heterosexual is. There's no definition for a heterosexual unless you understand that there are people who don't engage in that. They are homosexuals. You can't understand what a homosexual is except in opposition to heterosexual, which means in dialectical thought that there's a higher level understanding of this, which is just plain sexual. That's what it really is, which is. Relies upon to get to that, what it relies upon is destroying the concepts upon which hetero and homo rest, different and same. You have to obliterate the idea that there's any such thing as people who are attracted to the opposite sex virtually exclusively and people who are attracted to the same sex virtually exclusively. And it turns out the queer theory answer to that question is to obliterate sex completely. So you have man and woman in some sense opposites, and that leads us to the sublated concept of what is a woman. And I did a whole podcast on this before, so I don't have to rehash it too much here, but I'll remind you, Kentaji Brown Jackson, sitting on the stand, told us what the point of what is a woman. It is that she had to ask an expert. She doesn't know if she herself is a woman. She has to defer to an expert. In other words, some wizard or priest who understands the greater complexity, the complicated nature of sexuality, and sex, as a matter of fact, has to be appealed to, has to be asked, has to adjudicate. Are you a woman? Well, I don't know. Let me ask A. Turns out biologist was wrong answer. Gender studies professor was a right answer. Let me ask that person. And they'll give you some gobbledygook that basically says that you can claim that for yourself if you're this kind of person and you cannot claim it if you are not. So it's just a power grab in disguise. Here's another example of the dialectic in process. We have equality, right? Well, not for minorities. So there's horizontal situation, which at points in history, and in some ways, it may or may not be true or may certainly was true at certain times in history. Maybe it's not true now, but they can gin up the narrative. You can make people believe it. So we have equality, but not for minorities. Hmm, there's a contradiction. What do you do? Well, you redistribute shares so that groups and citizens are made equal. We call that equity. That's literally the definition of social equity coming out of the public administration field starting in 1968. And so, equity is an administered economy in which shares, whether they're social, cultural, or material capital, is redistributed so that citizens are made equal. And doesn't that sound like they've just lifted up into the cultural and social realm as well as the material realm the concept of socialism? Of course, it is. That's exactly what it is. Equity is socialism lifted up to a higher level that incorporates more pieces. But equity has to be administered, just like socialism had to be administered. And we all know that that's not fair. Even Lenin knew that wasn't fair, even though he ran a Soviet socialist republic. That's not fair. So you have equity, which is supposed to be fairness, but then you have it administered. So it's unfair, as you might have noticed. Ibrahim Kendi says that you have to use discrimination in order to get over discrimination. He says the only remedy for past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy for present discrimination is future discrimination. Well, that's still discriminating, right? Well, that's not fair. Well, in the long march of Alfheben, or the long march of sublation, or the long march of the dialectic, that unfairness of administered equality, equity, will turn into justice, which is when it happens all by itself, which is what Marx called communism, which is when we realize we are truly social beings who completely and willfully and eagerly and willingly, absolutely for every level, uh, willingly redistribute social, cultural, and economic capital. Because it's just the way we do. Not even if it's the right thing to do. It's because it's what we truly are as people. Okay, here's another example. For Herbert Marcuse, you read One Dimensional Man, which is the book that set the trend for the left since 1964. We live in the logic of Herbert Marcuse today. I did a couple podcasts on that. done many podcasts on Marcuse. I'll do some long-form ones on One Dimensional Man soon. Well, he's arguing through the second chapter of that that you have these two opposing forces. And we see this again in his essay on Liberation, for example, socialism and capitalism. And he says, well, socialism really has the idea, but it just can't produce. Capitalism, on the other hand, produces, it gives the goods, but it can't do so in a way that takes care of everybody. And thus it creates social inequality. That's not sustainable. It uses up the natural environment. That's not sustainable. It's destroying everything. It's creating needs where people, you know, you get your needs satisfied, so then you can go on to some other things, and then you need that. You don't know how to get through your day without ice cream. You don't know how to get through your day without, you know, your your cell phone and all the stuff on it, blah, blah, blah. So it creates more and more needs. Well, that's not sustainable. And so Alf Haven, we put them together. We get sustainable and inclusive capitalism, which is what the World Economic Forum and the United Nations are pushing for, incidentally. That's literally what they call it: sustainable and inclusive capitalism that's to be achieved through the sustainable development goals of the United Nations and also ESG, environmental and social and governance uh, scoring determined by stakeholders who are going to run a new form of capitalism called stakeholder capitalism that will be geared through ESG to become sustainable and inclusive. And you have the fusion of material and social and cultural capital in a socialist Mindset into one thing called sustainable capitalism or inclusive capitalism. And there you see another Alfhaven, another synthetic creation that, by the way, isn't going to work. Now, as a final point, I guess uh, the dialectic always moves left. It always moves left. It is a leftist mentality. It's not just, or it's actually a leftist operating system. It's not just uh, their religion. It's not just dialectical leftism. And there could be a, say, let's say, dialectical rightism. Well, I'll caveat that. There is one, but it's still leftist, sort of, because it's still dialectical. We'll come back to what that is. It's bad. We don't want dialectical rightism. The dialectic always moves to the left, and the reason it always moves to the left is that the fundamental contradiction is there is that which is the status quo, and it presents something new that's not the status quo. Moving away from the status quo is, by definition, leftist. That's what leftist means moving away from the status quo. Okay. So you have that which is, that's your thesis. Then there's something new, that's your antithesis. And then you get some new, blended, compromised policy, or you just meet all the leftist demands, or whatever, and you move away from that which was into something new. And the instant that happens, what do you get when you combine that which is with something new? You get the new right wing, because that's what it is. That's the new that which is. You go from that which is, and you make it something new. And when they get something new, that's what is. So it's already the right wing. In fact, it's the extreme right. It's the far right. It's the alt right. Gay marriage, alt right, far right, crazy town right. Anything that goes backwards in history, super far right, even further right. So you're always making progress according to leftist definitions, or you are, well, in fact, you always live in a completely fascist and right wing uh, state. And so with that which is always becomes, uh, whenever you get a new society, that becomes that which is. So it becomes immediately the far right. So the dialectic always moves left. Now, finally, could it move right? Here's that little caveat. Hmm. Yeah, that's called fascism. That's literally the definition of fascism. Why is fascist, like the Nazis, what were they? The national socialists. Huh. Why are they always socialist groups that cleave to, what? It, what is fascism? Fascism, you could say it's a fusion of the corporation and the state. Well, communism does that. It creates... There's one corporation called the USSR or the CCP or whatever, and it kind of rules all the other corporations. So that that that's not good. That's not what we're thinking. Well, what what is fascism? Well, it's a fusion of the corporation and the state, but it also, in fact, is is a socialist program that's decided to be nas- explicitly nationalistic as opposed to international, and that has been exp- uh, that that is explicitly uh, often ethnic, but not always. Um, we are Italians, we are white, we are whatever it happens to be. And so it's often an ethno-nationalist thing. That's a right-wing application of the same dialectical method. So it's the same method, but other direction. But the point is that the method always lands you right in the toilet. It doesn't actually move you to the right. It moves you into a different hellhole. It just happens to have certain elements that are, let's conserve the existing society. Let's conserve our ethnic heritage. Kind of in caricature or in pastiche this is why you have to worry about reactionary movements because reactionary movements say like the one happening today called neo-reaction are actually buying into that kind of mentality it's like preserving tradition by pastiche you know it's fake you know it's synthetic but you're going to force it anyway and it's just the same process the problem is the dialectic the problem is the process of using negation to make progress to cut down in order to get somewhere That's actually the problem. And so I don't know if this is a clarifying definition or explanation of the dialectic, but the dialectic is the combination of opposites so that you can see them from a higher perspective that only the wizards can understand. Fascism has its own wizards, communism has its own wizards, doesn't matter who they are. They're the super special priest class that they're the only ones who can understand the actual mysteries of the complex society, what it means to truly satisfy. Uh, the complex situation where opposites have been unified into a more cohesive understanding that's taken into account more and more and more of the pieces, etc. So that's your explanation of the dialectic. No way I could have done this fast. Everybody wants a short, succinct, 10-minute one. Well, it's a combination of opposites so you can see from a higher perspective, which is necessarily synthetic. And because it's synthetic, it's not organic. And because it's not organic, it's not going to work.